All right, if you got your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 9, uh, verses, verses 42 through 50 is where we're going to be this morning. As we close out this chapter of Mark, we've been here a couple of weeks uh, in this chapter. There's been a lot of stuff to look at. But as we start this morning, I want us to, to kind of ask a question and think about something. Why do we fight against sin as Christians? As Christians, the Bible teaches us that when Jesus Christ died, that he uh, exchanged our unrighteousness for his righteousness. And so uh, we've talked about this, how God sees us now through the righteousness of Jesus, that, uh, that he's taken all of our guilt, all of our shame, and he's given us his righteousness. And so our standing before God is based on uh, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. So if that's the case, why is it so important that we fight against sin? Why can't we just make sure that our good outweighs our bad? Is it simply a kind of a legal idea that God has said this is bad, that sin is bad, so therefore we do it just so we're good people, just so we do what we're supposed to do? Now, now yes, that can be a reason. We, we, we follow God. We do what God has called us to do. We obey God. But this morning, as we look at our passage, hopefully, uh, what we're going to see, not hopefully, but what we're going to see is... is kind of how God views sin, and then what our, our really our main motivation should be in fighting against sin. I understand we should fight against sin. I'm not saying that we shouldn't. But I want us to think about why we do it, why we fight against sin. Now, before we get into the passage, I want to take just a second to point something out. A couple of months ago, when we were back in Mark chapter 7, there was one Sunday morning because of something that popped up in the passage that we talked about a thing called textual variance. Now, I don't want to bore anyone. I want to take about a minute or two to do this. But textual variance are... <clears throat> the New Testament was not written in English. It was written in Greek. And so there are more... Um, copies of the, the Greek New Testament, or parts of it at least, than any other uh, work of antiquity or, or ancient work throughout history. There are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Greek copies of the New Testament. Now, when the, the scribes and when the people would write down uh, these, the, the copies so that they could be passed along, remember they didn't have the printing press at this point, they would write them down uh, with just ink and, and quill by, by candlelight. And so every so often there would be uh, maybe a misspelled word, maybe, uh, maybe they skipped over a word. And so what happens is when they get all of these different parts of the Greek New Testament together and they put them together and they're trying to figure out what everything says so that we have our copy of the Bible, sometimes there are, are variants, there are variations. So a word might be misspelled or maybe there's 10 copies that say this and 20 copies that say this. And so they've got to figure out which one are we going to go with. Now, let me say this. 99% of the textual variants that we see in the Bible are completely uh, inconsequential. It's a misspelled word. It's a word that's, that's maybe misplaced. It's a phrase that's worded differently in one copy than the other. So there is nothing in, the, uh, in these textual variants that, that impacts the validity of the Bible. And in fact, that 1% that, 
that's a little bit more consequential uh, or that impacts it in a meaningful way, it never impacts a passage that it has anything to do with the core doctrines of Christianity. Nothing about salvation, nothing about grace. In fact, one of the biggest ones uh, we'll see once we get to the end of the book of Mark in the next five or ten years, however long it takes us to get there. And so, but, but most of the, most of them, 99% of them, uh, do not impact it in any way. Now, sometimes when you're reading through your Bible, you'll see a little note that says, older manuscripts say this, or some manuscripts have it written this way, whatever the verse may be. The reason is, is because as they gathered all these together, there were some that they uh, have that were written as early as... I think it's within 60 to 70 years, uh, or copies within 60 to 70 years from when the originals were written. And then some that they have are maybe a couple hundred years or a few hundred years, up to a thousand years after the originals were written. And so there are some copies of the Bible that are written with some of the, I don't want to say newer copies of the Greek, of the Greek but some that are definitely written with the older. So the, the King James Bible was written in the 1600s. And so since then, through archaeological evidence and digs and things like that, they have found older copies. And so as they line these up, once again, same thing, textual variants, nothing major, nothing important. But some newer versions, I use the ESV. The ESV decided, you know what, we're going to go back and we're going to take the oldest copies, the oldest uh, copies in the Greek, and that's what we're going to use. And the only reason I point this out is because as we read this passage, if you have a King James Bible, verse 44 and 46 do not show up in some of the newer translations. Now, Verse 44 and verse 46 say the exact same thing as verse 48, which says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so it does not impact the meaning of the passage at all. I just wanted to make sure that we are all on the same page that as I read this, that you don't think that, hey, Cam's just missing verses here and there. I wanted wanted you to understand once again why that is the case. So, let's read Matthew chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Uh, We'll pray then we're going to make our way through the passage. Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than than with two hands to go to hell to unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. We love you. We thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for preserving it throughout time that we can trust uh, in the copies of your word that we have. And Father God, I pray that as we study your word, that you would speak through your word and through your spirit louder than my voice ever could. And God, you would use this to draw us closer to yourself. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. All right, first thing that I want us to see in verse 42 is that the price of leading believers into sin is great. 
Verse 42 says, Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin, or believe one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, as we look at this passage, I want us to understand something. If you back up to verse 33, verse 33, it kind of started this story where where Jesus and the disciples are walking and and the disciples are arguing about who is the greatest and who's the most important disciple and and who's the closest to Jesus. And when Jesus kind of sets up his kingdom, who's going to be the greatest and who's going to have the highest position of authority and power, everything else. And Jesus says to them, he takes a child into his arm in verse 37, and he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. And so in that, we talked about, as he brings this child, the idea that he is presenting to them is that the, the, the child is representative of, of those who are weak, or those who are outcasts, or those who have nothing to offer. Because in this time, those who pursued power, uh, they would have overlooked uh, children, because children were were second, third, fourth class citizens. They had no rights. They had no value as they were when it came to society. So Jesus is saying that that if you want to be a leader, that one of the things that you have to do is even value those who are outcasts or those who, who society has deemed invaluable. Now, the next passage or the next verse says that John asked a question. And so kind of what we have here, like if we're sitting here uh, and we're watching this unfold before us, Jesus and his disciples are sitting around. Jesus throws out verse 30, 37 where he talks about the child. And then basically John interrupts him. John interrupts him to say, hey, we saw this guy doing this thing. Uh, we told him to stop because he wasn't following us. We, we looked at that last week. And so then Jesus picks back up in verse 42, kind of carrying on the same idea. So we see the verse 38. He says, whoever uh, receives a such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. And then in verse 42, he's kind of carrying on the same thought. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it'd be better for a great millstone to be hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. And so kind of carrying on the same idea, getting back on to track after John has kind of thrown out this question, kind of interrupted him. Jesus is, as we look at the idea of little ones, he's not just talking about children, but if we tie this back into verse 37, he's talking about those who believe in him. He's talking about about believers who are, yes, young, young in their faith, young in their age, and believers who are weak, believers who are seen as small. And so uh, as Jesus is talking about this, he's not just talking about uh, people leading kids into sin. He's talking about those who lead believers who are young or weak in their faith into sin, leading them away from God and leading them into a lifestyle or to the activity of turning their back on God and trying to find life, happiness, pursuit, peace, joy, satisfaction in something less than Jesus. And so he says, anyone who leads, leads someone who, but one of these young ones who believes in me to sin. So he's kind of laying out this idea that That as Christians, 
We have an expectation. We, are, we do lead. Uh, we do have impact. We do have influence. But as Christians, we are not to lead and to encourage each other to sin. So we're asking kind of the question of why do we fight against sin? One of the things that Jesus says here is we don't lead other people to sin. In fact, what the Bible teaches us is we have a responsibility to each other to encourage one another to walk in righteousness, to encourage one another to do what is is right. All right, Terry, my verses are going to be backwards on the screen. Uh, can you hop over to the ones that says 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 13? 1 Corinthians 8, 7 through 13 says this. However, not all possess this knowledge. So what, what Paul is writing about here is he's talking about Christians who are, who are weak in their faith, who still believe in the existence of, of idols as real gods and not just statues. He says, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association uh, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commit us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. So there, the idea here is there was food that was, was offered to idols that was then sold in the marketplace at a cheap value. And Paul is talking to, to the believers because some believers said, you know what? This was offered up to an idol, so therefore it is, it is tainted spiritually. There's some kind of evil with it. We should not eat it. Some said, hey, here's some meat. It's been offered up to an idol. That means it's cheaper. We get cheap meat. And idols aren't real, so it doesn't really matter. He continues on in verse 9. He says, But take care that this is right, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating an, uh, an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, uh, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul says, if you have a brother in Christ and they see you eating this quote-unquote tainted meat, and they're weak enough in their faith that they see that, and it causes them to, to somehow... It causes them to somehow think that that is a real uh, idol and, and, and somehow it impacts their view of Jesus and it impacts their view of idolatry and they sin against their conscience by eating something that they believe is wrong. Paul says that you share some responsibility in that. And Paul goes so far to say that if it causes another brother to stumble, I won't eat meat ever again. That there's a responsibility that Paul is taking upon himself to say, I want to encourage, I want to challenge, I want to build up my brothers and sisters in Christ. That, that if it means that if it's going to help someone not sin, or if it's going to keep me from being a stumbling block to someone, or, or leading someone to sin, then I'll give up a right that I have in order to love someone else, in order to serve someone else, in order to, to seek what is best for another believer. And so that is completely in opposition to what Jesus is talking about here. So what we are supposed to do is to look out for one another, to, to encourage one another, to even lay aside our rights if it means that we can encourage another brother or sister in Christ. And so when Jesus talks about leading someone to sin, this is what I believe that he's talking about. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 2 through 6, it says this. Jesus, or, or Paul is talking to Timothy. He's talking about some of these people that have kind of weeded themselves into the church. He talks about the impact and influence they have. It says this, 
For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Verse 5, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin, and led astray by various passions. So here Paul says, look, there are people who are in the church, people who would call themselves Christians, people who have the appearance of godliness. They kind of on the outside, they've got it looking good. They, they kind of look how they're supposed to look. They know the words to use. They know how to act to kind of convey this picture of Christianity. But inside, in their heart, at who they are, and he spends like Three verses listing all this stuff, treacherous, reckless, uh, uh, without self-control, conceit, all this stuff that he lists out. And he says, ultimately, where it leads to is them t- kind of, how does he word it? He says, uh, who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Basically, they kind of worm their way into the church so that they can then have a negative impact with these women and lead them into sin. So when Jesus is talking about causing a little one to sin or causing one who is weak or young in their faith to sin, this is kind of the idea that he's talking about. I don't think that he's necessarily saying, hey, if you somehow accidentally or negatively accidentally impact your brother or sister with Christ, that this is kind of the the fate that is waiting for you. I think what he's saying is, if your purpose is to lead believers in Christ away from Christ and into sin, away from righteousness and into sin and unrighteousness, that there is a penalty, (coughs) excuse me, there is a steep penalty waiting for you. And so that penalty that he mentions, it says it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This millstone was a a big circle stone that a a donkey or a mule would would pull to to crush the grains to make it uh, ready for them to make bread and things like that. And so Jesus is not saying that we should literally take a millstone and tie it around someone's neck. He's, he's using hyperbole. He's, he's kind of using a, an extreme example to make a point. And the point is this. That if you lead other people into sin, sin which God has called wicked, sin which God has called unrighteous, sin which God has said this is opposite of who I am, and you are leading people into that, understand the The penalty that you are storing up for yourself is incredibly great. The suffering that would come with tying a millstone around someone's neck and throwing them into sea and making them sink down and that that suffering of, of, of dying in that manner doesn't even compare. He says it would be far better. It doesn't even compare to the punishment that is coming your way when the time of judgment comes. There's a penalty, a great penalty, a great price for taking those who believe in Jesus and trying to steer them away from Christ, away from obedience to Him, and steer them into sin. Next, as Jesus continues on, we see that we must be serious in our fight with sin. 
So verse 43 through 48, he kind of goes through here and he says, look, if your hand causes you to sin, it's better to cut off your hand than to uh, enter into life uh, with both hands. Same with your feet. Same with your eye. Now, once again, Jesus is not saying uh, that we should literally be cutting off our hands and cutting off our feet and gouging out our eyes. He's using hyperbole. In fact, the Bible is clear throughout all of Scripture that, that sin is an issue of the heart. So it doesn't matter how many limbs we chopped off, how many eyes we gouged out, how many ears we cut off. It would not fix our sin problem. Our sin problem is only fixed through Jesus. Our sin problem is only fixed through faith and trust in Jesus Christ and what he did for us on the cross. That is the only thing that forgives us, and that is the only thing that helps us walk in purity and in righteousness and in confessing our sin and repenting. It's not through beating ourselves up. It's not through mutilation. It's through trusting in Jesus. So what Jesus is saying is, look, it is better to enter into life. When he says life there, he's talking about eternal life. He says, it would be better for you to enter into eternal life, beat up and lame and blind, than to go full-bodied into hell. And Jesus is laying this out there saying, look, sin is wicked. Sin is destructive. And yes, you're going to have to fight against sin. Yes, you're going to have to fight against temptation. Yes, you're going to have to know if it's your eye leading you astray, your hand, your feet. You're going to have to understand what it is that, that, that Satan uses or what it is that our flesh is attracted to when it comes to sinfulness so that you can fight against it. And yes, that fight might be difficult and that fight might be tough and that fight might leave you scarred. But I'm telling you, that walking in righteousness and walking in obedience and trusting Jesus and, and, and entering into eternal life, even beat up, is far greater than saying, you know what? The world says I should sin. My flesh says I should sin. I'm just going to do what I want to and have fun in this world. Because once again, there is a price to pay. He says it is better to enter into a life or eternal life with with. Uh, crippled than with two hands to go into hell. What Jesus does here too is he lays out there's only two options. Once this life ends, and this life will end for everybody, once this life ends, we either spend eternity in hell with God, I mean, sorry, in heaven with God, or we spend eternity in hell being judged for our sins. Those are the only two options. Once this life ends, we end up one of those two places. Now, the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ. The only way to heaven is having our sins forgiven by placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. By trusting that His work on the cross, by trusting that who He was, God in the flesh, was enough to have our sins forgiven. Enough to, to uh, restore us to a relationship with God. It is enough to have us adopted into God's family to be God's children. There are many ways to hell. But ultimately it comes through not placing your faith and trust in Jesus. You and I are sinners. You and I mess up. You and I have broken God's law. We have broken God's rule. We have broken God's commandments. Anything from thou shalt not lie to thou shalt not steal. Anything within all of the Bible where God says, do not do this or do this, you and I have broken it. Because we have broken God's commandments, because we have fallen short of God's standard, which is perfection, you and I deserve hell. In fact, that's the way we are going 
going naturally as human beings. We are headed towards judgment. We are headed towards punishment. And the only way to escape that is through Jesus Christ. And as we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are made new. We are given the righteousness of Christ. Everything that I talked about at the beginning. And our sin and our guilt and our shame is forgiven and wiped away. But even in that context, Jesus says we are still to fight against sin. We are still to push back against sin. We are still to fight against the temptation that that lives within us and walk in righteousness. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 27, he said, But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul says, I understand the, the, the draw of sin. I understand the draw of temptation. So I live in discipline. I, I, I make sure, I, I, I place what is valuable first. I, I make sure that, that I live within certain confines so that my life is not overtaken by sin. Because you and I, we are... We're weak. We're weak, and, and, and sin is the reason why it's tempting, because it seems good. It seems pleasurable. And Paul says, I understand that, and so I fight against it. I, I, I chase against or I run away from it. I flee it, because I know I don't want to discredit myself or disqualify myself when it comes to being a teacher. Well, at the same time as Christians, we can't lose our salvation. That salvation that we've been gifted, that is... God holds that in his hand. He has promised that nothing and no one can, can take that from him. But we are still to fight against sin. We are still to make war with the sin that exists in our lives. We are, one, because of, it goes against who God is. Two, it's because it costs Jesus his life. Three, sin always negatively impacts us, not just in eternity, but also in this life. Sin impacts our relationships. It impacts our attitude. It impacts our our pursuit and our purposes. Sin is destructive and always leads to death. Always, without exception. And God has warned us, sin is against who I am. You need to flee sin, fight against it. Paul says he disciplines his body. Everything that we can do to fight against sin, we should. Now, as we move to the next couple of verses, I believe that it answers the question of why. Why should we be fighting against sin? Now, as you read this, maybe you're sitting there and you read this, or when we read it through, you get to verse 49 and it says... For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will it be made salty again? And so you go from cut off your hands, get out your eyes, cut off your feet, because sin is bad, to, hey, salt is good. What in the world is going on here? Where, how do these two things connect? I'm going to tell you they connect, and they connect very beautifully. And it leads us to this. Here's our next point. That our motivation for fighting sin is worship. Our motivation for fighting against sin is worship. Now, the key to understanding this passage is found in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. So it should be on your note sheet. It'll be on the screen. Leviticus 2, 13 says this. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering With all the offerings, you shall offer salt. So, in the Old Testament, as they offered up offerings, grain offerings and meat offerings, he said all offerings will be offered with salt. They were to to offer salt with them. And here's why. 
They did not have refrigerators. They did not have freezers. They did not have a cooling way to, to store their food. So to keep their meat from, from rotting, to keep their meat to stay pure, they would pack it with salt. That, that salt would, would, would kind of have two purposes. It would had a purification purpose uh, that it would keep it from spoiling, and it had a preservative purpose that it would let it stay much longer. And so they were to, to, to offer up what they call a covenant of salt. The salt would be packed with the offering. And the idea here is that through the, um, as the offering was worshipped up with, with worship, or the offering was worship, offered up as a, as a way of worship, this idea of salt that comes along with it is that the salt helps purify and preserve. So it's called the salt of the covenant. So it's that picture that this covenant with God is pure. It's a picture that the, the covenant the Israelites had with God, the, the covenant, the promise that he had given to Abraham, that, that I will bless you, I'll make you a great nation, outnumber the stars, was being preserved and was staying pure. So when Jesus talks about, for everyone will be salted with fire, he is throwing out there or, or placing out there that, that when it comes to this idea of worship and when it comes to this illustration of salt, the illustration of salt is, is, is keeping our worship pure and focused on, on who Jesus is. And so Romans chapter 12 verse 1, our lives are to be lived in an offering of worship to God. So Romans 12 1 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are the offering now. What Paul says there in Romans 12:1 is that, that worship is us offering our bodies or us offering our lives to God as the offering. And so as he's talking about salt here, we're about to kind of get into more detail on what he's saying, but, but trying to understand this concept of salt, understand this, uh, this idea of salt, it's all about worship. It's all about the offering that we are bringing to God. And so in the Old Testament, they brought the offerings of, of grain and meat. In the New Testament, the offering that we bring, it's ourselves. It's our life. It's how we live in a way that glorifies and praises God. And so as, as Jesus begins to transition here, talking about salt, the reason why we fight against sin is, yes, we fight against sin because there, here's the bad stuff God has told us not to do, and here's the good stuff God has told us to do. But we also, we fight against sin because it impacts our worship to God. We fight against sin because we want to live a life that worships, that glorifies, that magnifies, that lifts up, that exalts Jesus. That is worship. And so if we are engaging in sin, if we don't see sin as very important, if we're not fighting against the sin in our life, if we're not repenting against the sin in our life, and we just say, hey, it's not a big deal. It's just a little white sin. It's not nothing major. I'm not hurting anybody. My good outweighs my bad. Whatever we say to try to justify our sin, if that's what we're doing, then it impacts our worship to God. We're not being salted. We're not being preserved. We're not being purified. Instead, we are robbing God of his worship. We're, we're robbing God of a life that should be glorifying and magnifying and pointing others to Jesus. 
The reason why we fight against sin is because God loved us and we love Him. The reason we fight against sin is because we understand that God is great, God is big, and He deserves our lives. He deserves our worship. And our worship, according to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, is found in us offering our lives as a sacrifice, giving Him our lives, giving Him who we are, and saying, God, here is all that I am. I give it to you to be lived for you, to be lived for your glory, for you to do what you want with, so that my life, my words, my thoughts, my heart, my actions are lived to magnify you and show the world how great you are. And sin, sin does just the opposite. So as we move forward and kind of the question is answered, why? Why do we fight against sin? The idea is in the offering. The answer is in the offering. The answer is what kind of offering are we offering up to God? Is it an offering that has been seasoned with salt so that it's purified and it is preserved? Or are we offering something up to God that has not been? And so therefore it is rancid and it is worthless and valueless. Okay. Excuse me for all the coughing. All right, verse 49. The fight against sin purifies and preserves our faith. It says, for everyone will be salted with fire. So once again, the idea of salt is purification and preservation. The idea of fire we see throughout Scripture uh, has a purifying effect in our faith. 1 Peter 1, 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that is perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so this, this idea here of being salted with fire is as we fight against sin, as we fight against temptation, that is kind of adding to the salt. As we fight against this, that is how we are salting our lives. That's how we are per- persevering in our faith. That's how we are pushing forward. It's by understanding that when temptation comes, understanding that as we fight against sin, that is, is working out in our favor and purifying us and helping us and walk to God, walk with God and helping us and offering up an offering to God that is not, that is not putrid or that, that is not worthless, but one that is, is being purified, one that is being uh, persevered, one that is being preserved because uh, of, of us walking with God and fighting against temptation. James 1, 2 through 3 says this, count it all joy, my brothers, When you meet trials of various kinds, that even means temptation. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If we want to be steadfast in our faith, if we want to keep pushing forward in our faith, if we want to be consistent in our faith, we have to fight against sin. As we are salted with fire, as we fight against sin, as we deal with temptation, as we fight against it, as we repent when we fall short and we keep pushing forward, it helps us grow and mature in our faith, not so we can say, hey, I'm such a strong Christian, but so that we are offering up a life to God that glorifies Him and magnifies him. Verse 50. The fight against sin makes us effective and useful. It says salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt with yourself and be at peace with one another. So salt is good. This whole idea of purification, preservation, good thing. How is the salt made unsalty? Now, 
Most of the salt in this area came from the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea has so much salt in it, you can just sit in it and float. Uh, it's almost impossible to go underwater, and definitely to stay underwater, because of all the minerals that are in the Dead Sea. So as they would gather the, the salt out of the Dead Sea, uh, sometimes uh, there were impurities in that salt. The impurities in that salt gave it a, a bad taste. It made it where you could not use it. You could not use it to season your food. You could not use it to keep your meats. It was, it was worthless. It had zero value. You couldn't even throw it into your yard or, or into your crops because it would kill all of the plants or anything that was growing. It had to be thrown out into the streets to be trampled on and to be worn down into the dirt. In fact, Luke chapter 14 says this, verses 34 through 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This idea of saltiness is not about salvation. It's about effectiveness. It's about our worship. It's about our usefulness to God in His kingdom. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, if, it, if, it is, if sin has come in and we engage in sin and we make excuses for our sin and we just embrace our sin and we're not fighting against sin and we're not repenting of our sin, then that sin is the impurity in the salt that makes the salt worthless, that, that takes that robs the salt of its value. If we are engaging of sin, sin, if we just look at our sin and say, I'm not hurting anybody. No one else has to know about this. I can do this and it doesn't matter. Uh, I've already been forgiven, so, so why can't I do this? If that's how we view sin, then what uh, Jesus is saying here with this idea of, of salt losing its saltiness, not that you lose your salvation, but that you lose your effectiveness. You lose the impact that you can have on the world. You lose your impact that you can have on other people. You lose your impact in being the offering that is used to worship God. As a Christian, our purpose is to glorify God and to push other people or encourage other people towards Jesus Christ and the gospel. What he is saying here is if you're living a life where you're not fighting against sin and you're just jumping headlong into sin, you're not repenting, you're not fighting against temptation, then what you're doing is you're throwing away your purpose as a believer. You're throwing away your worship. You're throwing away the idea that you are an offering made to God to exalt Him, to lift Him up. And your lifestyle, your actions, your thoughts, your words are doing just the opposite. You're throwing away the, the opportunity that you have to have impact on other people to impact their eternity and to impact their relationship with God. He's not talking about losing your salvation. He's talking about the influence and the impact that we have in the lives of others and the effectiveness we have in the kingdom of God and to worship God. I can tell you, I don't know if there's anything sadder than for a Christian to be set on the bench of worship and impact, worship and missions, worship and evangelism, simply because they would rather have their sin than have the God who loved them and have their son die for them. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about. Salvation is salvation. You can't lose that. But as believers, as a believer, if you can engage in sin without any conviction, and you can engage in sin, and you can just jump headlong into it, you need to examine your heart. Because it means one of two things. It means, one, your faith is not real. It's what Paul told uh, the church of uh, Colossians, I believe. He says, examine your faith. Make sure that it's real. Make sure that you are of the faith. Or it means that you have so hardened your heart towards God that you have no effectiveness in the kingdom. Which for a Christian might be one of the worst things to say about one. And then Jesus closes out with this. He says, have salt in yourself. So be fighting against sin. And be at peace with one another. Now why does he close out this section by saying be at peace with one another? Where do we say this conversation started? Back in verse 33. What's happening in verse 33? The disciples are fighting and arguing about who is the greatest. He's warning the disciples. If you keep down this path, if you keep down this path of pursuing yourself, if you keep down this path of self-centeredness and of selfishness, you're going to lose your effectiveness in the kingdom. Be at peace with one another. Love each other. Forgive one another. Quit fighting. Quit arguing. Quit, quit being bitter towards one another. Quit uh, uh, seeing who is the best and who is the greatest. Instead, love each other and live at peace with one another. The reason why John interrupts that, that, that question, or with that question, remember last week we talked about the kingdom, the idea of, of, of the God's kingdom expanding, the idea of, of having a, a direction and, and seeing the kingdom of God expanded through the lives of, of, of other people being changed. This all works together with Jesus letting the disciples know, look, quit fighting amongst yourself. Quit arguing about who is the greatest. Understand that you are here for the kingdom. Fight against this sin because if it does not, then you lose your effectiveness in the expansion of this kingdom. And you lose your effectiveness in the worship of the God who loves you more than anyone else. Sin is fought against, not simply because it's a rule, a list of rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts. Sin is fought against because as God's children, we are made to worship Him. We have been saved and given the opportunity to worship Him. We have been saved and given the opportunity to be used by Him to expand His kingdom. Yet if we choose sin as believers over Him and we harden our hearts, then everything that God has called us to do, we completely lose our effectiveness at and we're pushed to the side. Luke says, useful for nothing to be thrown out into the road and trampled on. As believers, let us fight against sin, not just so we're seen as good people, but so that our lives are lived to the glory of God and the expansion of His kingdom.